0: You haven't placed us individually in isolated ways, although at times it might feel like that. We know what's really true is that we are connected with a whole group of people here at Grace, here in Lawrence, throughout all time and history, people that have experienced and tasted your goodness, who have lived in your gospel and understood it in different ways and have seen your provision for them in their different circumstances. And so we come today as your people in 2009 here in Lawrence, Kansas, anticipating what it is that you want to do in our lives, we come needy, wanting, needing to hear from you. We need you to remind us again of who you are because we forget so easily. We need you to remind us of what you have promised to us and what you have provided for us in Christ because we forget so easily. So, enable us this morning to hear from you, to be encouraged, to be challenged to be better equipped to serve you this week. Again, our our heart's desire is that as we leave, having met with you this morning, that there is something different about us that will be seen by others, that will enable us this week to walk with you in a worthy way. So do that this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, we're going to continue the same passage uh, that we looked at last week. And we're going to come at it from a little bit different angle. Uh, last week, if we came at it from the angle of a, of a test, we're going to see now, we're going to ask the question, what is it that God is doing here through the test of Abraham? What is it that God intends to do through this and and what is it that we can learn about the gospel. So Genesis 22, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. The majority of our time this morning that will be spent really in the last part of this, really verses uh, 13 through 19 will be the focus of our time this morning. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here am I, my son. he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? He said, "Do not lay your hand on the boy, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me." And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him there was uh, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, "The Lord will provide." shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's a rich text. And as I mentioned last week, the test itself is hard to kind of get over. It kind of takes our breath away when we realize what it is that that God had called Abraham to do in the sacrificing of his own son. But as we get over what it is that God had asked him to do and we understand more what's going on, we're able to enjoy and appreciate indeed what God is doing in this account. We see, and again, there's there's lots we can say, and I don't have time to unpack the, the issue of the test, but it's a unique situation in history in which God is doing something very special here. And as a result, we have something that's not normative. It doesn't call people to sacrifice their children, but it's a test that he gives to Abraham. God is the creator, and God has a prerogative that's hard for us to understand. We also have a lens as we look at the test as we understand that God... Um, did fully what he asked Abraham to do only in part. That God, through Christ, that God actually went through with the sacrifice of His own Son. And the other thing that's helpful is we look at the test as we understand that it that, that Isaac was safe that day. That nothing was going to happen to him. The intentions of God were good. It was to prove through this test. Abraham, and to give him this opportunity for his test, his test to grow, and so his faith to grow. So as we look at this through the lens of a test, we understand that God was really strengthening Abraham in this situation. We see that his faith grows, and the same is true for us, that we honor God and we show God to be our king and to be worthy of our lives, as in the mo- most difficult circumstances we obey him and trust him. And we understand that this test didn't come in the in the context of nothing. It wasn't out of nowhere. It was in the context of a relationship that God had cultivated with Abraham over the course of 40 years of promises and covenants he had made and signs he had given him and the fulfillment of a son. And then we have a test. And this chapter, this passage, this narrative of Abraham ends with a picture of or gives us another promise that God gives as he reinstates uh, the the promises that he give Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And in the test, we saw that his faith grew. We saw that our relationship with God, our maturity grows. We saw that God delights in our obedience because it's something he produces in us. And so through the lens of the test, we understand that, that God is honored in, in the way that we respond. But, but maybe some of you went home, and maybe the dinner table conversation went something like this with a friend or with a spouse or a child. Maybe your kid said, you know, Dad, that, that, uh, that message was good, and, you know, that test motif is really important in this passage. But, but you know, I think, that, uh, I think that some, I think you really missed the point of this passage. I think the real essence of this passage is something else than just a test. And if your conversation went something like that, congratulations. Uh, He was right. You were right that there's more to this passage than just the test. The test is what's happening. The passage is really about something that God is doing through what's happening. It's not just what God is doing in Abraham. It's what God is doing through Abraham. And that's what we want to look at this morning. The heart of the passage, the essence here is what God is doing, how he is displaying what he wants to do in terms of his plan of redemption. This is one of those rich passages where we can see God's revelation of what he wants to do in redemption, his plan to save mankind, his plan to redeem mankind. Sometimes we think that the Old Testament is just a whole group and a bunch of stories that are kind of stuck together. And they're stories about people and you read the stories and you go, oh, that's cool, Look how Daniel was saved from the lions, and look how Abraham believed God. And and, and there certainly are a story of individuals, but more than a story of individuals, what we have in the Old Testament is a collection, is a progressive revelation of God that over the course of the Old Testament in the Bible, God is progressively, stage by stage, revealing his intentions, his saving intentions in and through these accounts. He utilizes people, he involves people, he uses stories and his provision, but it's all a picture of what God is doing. It's a picture of his revelation, his intentions. This account of Abraham is not about Abraham per se, and we kind of talked about that last week. It's not just about him, it's what God wants to do through Abraham. Abraham it's about the purposes that will come of God through him and what's interesting to note is the amount of time that we actually see Abraham. We have a 40 minute window of a, or 40 minutes, sorry, 40 year window of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 to 22. Abraham was 75 years old when God came to him. 75. About 115 years old is probably the time period somewhere in that range where we have this account here. And then we have another 60 years before we find out that Abraham dies. So we're told very little of the life before and the life that follows this account. And so it reminds us this is not about Abraham. It's about what God is doing through Abraham in this story, in this account. We look at these glimpses throughout the Bible and we see that God is revealing progressively his intentions, his saving intentions. And as we look back through the vantage point of Christ, Christ who is the fulfillment of what God intends to do, how is it he's going to save people? He's going to save people through Christ. We see that there's ways, there's stages, there's steps along the way that he shows and forms and patterns that he places in the Old Testament. And all of those are pointing towards Christ. We look back through and we see that it makes sense and we see the beauty of of what God is doing throughout all of history, with Christ right at the center. Each of those points, each of these accounts, Abraham account here included, has a meaning in and of itself, but it also has a broader meaning as it's connected with this larger story of what God is doing. It's like a puzzle, if you will. It's a puzzle. If you think about it, or a mosaic, there's a couple different ways to look at it. If you think about a puzzle, and in this this case, each piece has a picture on it has its own picture, has its own story. But then as these pieces of each story are placed together, there's an even larger story that's being put together that God is placing and painting and making for us and putting on display. We have the story of Abraham. We have the story of Isaac and Jacob. And you can walk through all the Old Testament, each of those stories, but each of them have a place that's significant in the larger story, a more comprehensive story of what God is doing And what's interesting, each of those pieces has a a contribution to what God is doing. But also in God's intention, each of those pieces, some of them have a more foundational role. You know when you're putting a puzzle together and you're going, you're trying to do this thing. And you're going, if I could just get this one piece, then everything else would kind of come together. That's kind of the same thing here with Abraham. Once this piece is in place, once a piece of, as God says, this is what I'm going to do in Abraham, then a whole bunch more begins to build and we can, he can build on it. And so Abraham is a foundational piece. And in this story, we see a piece, a central piece of what God is doing on the, the larger landscape of his redemptive intentions. His intentions to save. And so we see in Abraham this picture. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, what is it that we learn about the gospel? Just very simply, what is it we learn about the gospel, about God's saving intentions, as we look at this one piece what do we learn about the whole by looking at this piece? And then we can go backwards. What do we learn about the piece by looking at the whole? We can go both ways. And so that's the question we want to ask. What do we learn about God's saving intentions, his plan of redemption of the gospel by looking at this? Or we learn about the whole puzzle by looking at this piece? And I need to remind you, I need to tell you this morning, I had to tell myself several times, what I'm going to say are things that we've heard over and over and over again. If we've heard the gospel, we have a sense of what that is. But the beauty of what we're going to talk about is a reminder again of the gospel for sure. It's a reminder of the gospel in the Old Testament, which is even better to see how it fits together with the new. But I think as we look at the gospel, the good news of God's plan, in this form, there's some particular things that we can learn and kind of pull out of it that will be helpful for us as we see the gospel in this form for us. And I hope that will become obvious. There's three things that we're going to see about the gospel, picture of the gospel in this passage. The first one, we're going to see a pattern that God uses in his provision. God will provide. How does he do it? He does it through a pattern of substitution. Okay? We understand there's a substitute that's there. And, and so that's one piece. The second is that there's a foundation on which God builds, and He builds on His promises. We're going to see that in this passage. And the third thing we're going to see in this picture, on this, this uh, tapestry or whatever of what God is doing, is that there's an invitation for everyone to be involved in what God is doing. First one is substitution, a pattern second one is the foundation of promise. And the third is this invitation that God has. So the first one, this picture of, of the, the gospel through and the substitution that's present here. It's very clear. If you look in verse 13, you see what takes place here. Um, Abraham comes to sacrifice his son. He brings him to that point. It's a, he raises the knife as the picture takes us, as the narrative takes us to that point. God says, stop. Now I know. Now I see. Now I experiencing your obedience and he says there is There's another that I'm going to use to replace Isaac and he says there's a ram over here in the thicket he's caught and God provides a ram and he says that he is offered as a burnt offering instead of his son instead of Isaac so we see that there is a prefiguring right a, a picture here of what Christ would do for us in this, this picture of a pattern of substitution that the life of the ram is substituted for the life of Isaac that Isaac is ransomed, Isaac is saved from his death by this substitute, that one takes the place of that. So we see this picture that's here in this passage that God wants to lay down for us. This is the first explicit place that we have, this pattern, this picture. How is it that God is going to save? Oh, he's going to save by, by way of a substitute. Somebody will take the place. And in so doing, there will be redemption. There's going to be a ransom that's in that in that way. So that's the picture that we have here. The place name of this reminds us again of what this is about. The place name reminds us that this isn't about Abraham but it's about something that God is doing through Abraham. The Lord will provide. Reminds us that it's God's provision that's being put on display here. His provision comes through a substitute. This place name is not called Abraham obeyed. It is not called Abraham was tested and obeyed. The place name was God provided a means through which Isaac could live. And so we understand in God's redemption of his intentions, the gospel is seen in the form and pattern of a substitute. A ram was substituted for Isaac. Now the question that we ask, and this is an interesting one. If you, why is it that anything had to be substituted at all? If indeed there's a test going on here, we come to the point, he raises the knife, God says, okay, I get you, you're you're real. You passed the test. Why isn't he just saying that, you know what? You can pack up and go home. Go ahead and pack. You know, you can go back and head back home. You've passed the test. Why is it that God required? Why is it something fuller that the completion of the sacrifice was necessary in this case? As we look at that and we try to answer that question, we're reminded, right, again, it's not just about the test. It's about something else that God is doing in the pattern. He wants to remind the readers of the way that God is going to save and what he is going to do. Because the question you might have asked Abraham on that day, as he's going, you would say, what is it that you're doing? How would you understand what you are doing right now? We see it through the lens of a test. But if you were to ask Abraham, you would find that he saw it through the lens of worship. He saw what he was doing as worshiping God. And because he understood the great value of God and the great worth of God, he was willing, no matter what it took, to demonstrate that in God's command through his obedience to him to do that. So Adam saw, or, or Abraham saw what he was doing in the form of, of worship. He was worshiping God, and no matter what it took, he was willing to do that. We see that worship is essentially bound and tied to sacrifice in this way. And as we ask the question about this worship, we ask the question of how these are connected, worship and sacrifice, there's a couple things that's helpful. One, as I mentioned in the the offertory, we're reminded that the worth of God is seen in the costliness of the sacrifice. That the worth of God is seen in the costliness of the sacrifice. And certainly that's the case here with Isaac. That Abraham, the worshiper, was willing to sacrifice whatever it took to demonstrate an in-worship to God. But there's more that's, in, that's kind of tied to this imagery that's helpful for us as we look at and ask about God's intentions. And that has to do with the imagery of the burnt offering. That we see here is that as, as Abraham came to God, he recognized that there's a huge gap. There's a huge variance between who God is and who he was. In lots of different ways that can't even be explained. Certainly are explained, that, that gap is explained by one word, By sin. That the rest of the Old Testament unpacks and unfolds. That gap is, is characterized by the sin of humanity. The corruption that is within us inherently based upon the fall. And the distance that God is from us. The holiness of God. The otherness of God. So there's this huge gap and its seen depicted here. And that the sacrifice, the substitute was necessary to bridge the gap between the two. And the picture of a burnt offering is a picture for us of atonement. It's a picture for us of what will cover, what will bridge the gap will be a substitute. There was something that was necessary. There was a sacrifice that was absolutely essential to bridge the gap between holy God and sinful man. And so Abraham recognizes that. And the suffering, this, this sacrifice is a piece and helps us understand that from the past to the future in the Old Testament, it informs this account, it informs this sacrifice reminding us that sin is present and the distance between man and God is real and that sacrifice is necessary to bridge the gap and that in this case God's provision for sacrifice was a substitute which would be the ram that would save and ransom Isaac. This was an atoning sacrifice If we can see, right, the threads that, that stretch all the way to Christ, the substitute that would take our place, that would bridge the gap between God, holy and other than us, needing our sin forgiven, needing our sin covered, needing that difference, that gap between us and God bridged, and that there would be a covering that's there. And we understand Christ, we understand the whole of God's picture, the fulfillment of his provision in Christ more fully. And you read through the Gospels and you have this language, the very opening chapter of the Gospel of John, where you have the John, the, John the Baptist as he comes across Jesus, and what does he say? He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes, takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, what's he talking about there? He's talking about a number of lambs, right, in the Old Testament. This is one of them. One of the substitute these substitutes who would come to deal with our sin, as well as other forms of that, of the Passover lamb as well. Also helps us understand Christ's own words about himself when he says, in Mark, when he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. And so the picture of the gospel is seen there as a ransom where the one would offer as a substitute that Jesus would do that. And so when we ask the question, what's God doing? What's the form? What's the pattern of his provision? It's in a substitute that will take the place, that would bridge the gap between us and God. would provide forgiveness of sin so that we can enter into relationship with God. We can enter into worship with God. There's another aspect of this passage, which is kind of, it's in the text, but a little bit behind it, if you will. And it's its the place that this geographically took place. It's, it's a fascinating to think about as God puts this pattern in history. He says, Abraham, take a three-day journey and go to Moriah. Most archaeologists believe that Moriah was the place of Jerusalem, that the vicinity was was the city of Jerusalem that he sent him in which this sacrifice, this, this picture, this pattern would be done. And many believe even that the hill upon which he went was the place or within the vicinity of Calvary, the very place where God would substitute his own son on our behalf. So when you factor that into the picture, you're going, what is God doing? He's showing us His provision in this pattern of of substitution. But even geographically saying it's on this place. It's in this place that I will do the very same thing. Only I will do it fully and I will do it completely in Jesus Christ. Now as we look at this picture, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel for us. An account of God's intentions, intentions and the pattern as a substitute. But what's interesting is that again focusing on what it is that Abraham was was focusing, what he saw himself doing was, was worshiping, is what God has done here is cleared the way for him to worship. That the sacrifice, the substitute, is a provision to enable the worshiper to access to God, okay? So it's access to God through the substitute. And that's the picture I think that's helpful for us. The focal point of Abraham was worship. And I think for us, and this is where I want to kind of point on and kind of tap on each of us and myself included. In our 21st century Christianity, in our 21st century kind of consumer-driven understanding of what the gospel is, I think we miss the point of the gospel sometimes. We become short-sighted or we miss the forest for the trees when it comes to the gospel. And what we end up doing is reducing what Christ has done for us down to very simple kinds of things that are good but not the whole point. He, what Christ does for us is he forgives our sins. That's a good thing. I want to buy that. Okay, I want my sins forgiven so I can feel good about myself. Second thing, gets me out of hell. That's a great thing. The wrath of God is averted. I can be free of the the, the fear of of eternal destruction, eternal uh, separation from God. That's a good thing. I get into heaven even better, right? So again, you see in our own minds, we see the gospel and go, what do I get I'll take that. That's a good buy. And what we do is we consume the gospel in that way by what it gives to us. The benefits we get, and they are benefits. But what we miss is the very thing that Abraham understood. What we miss sometimes is all of this is for a purpose. It's to clear the way for us to come into a relation with God. It's to have access to God. It's to come into his presence. It's to come and to know him. It's the very thing that God has wanted to do. Not just to give us these things, which is good, forgiveness, and out of hell, into heaven, great things. But actually to come into the presence of our Father without fear. And to know him. And so the gospel reminds us it is to clear the way for us to come boldly into the throne of God. And I read in in the call to worship this morning that passage from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 where it's a call for us to come into the presence of God. To let us come near and the author, as he writes, it reminds us that all that Christ has done, the provision that he has made for us, the purpose of it is to come boldly into the presence of God. It's to come near. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast. And it reminds us of what God is doing. So in the image of a substitute which God has provided, we see that he desires for his people to come into his presence, that he desires worship. And so the gospel connects us with worship. That's the first picture. A substitute enables us to worship, to come boldly into the presence of God. The second picture, I need to look at my watch here. Whoops. Um, I knew this would happen. But uh, Bill has this prerogative that I don't have and I don't take. And so I do my best to to stay within some time parameters. Uh, The second point, um, the second picture we see, how is God, what is he placing uh, on this picture of his redemption. What's he doing? First picture, substitution, provision for us in the presence of God. The second one is a picture of his the foundational aspect of his promises. The foundational aspect of his promises. 16 through 18, this reiteration of the promises that God gives to Abraham. In Genesis 12, he intensifies them now. And it reminds us again that what's just taken place, God is doing something through them. So he says, now I'm going to give you these promises again. God's extent, uh, redemption and extending through him in, in the form of these promises. Three promises he gives. One, I will bless and multiply. Secondly, the gates, the, your offspring will hold, um, possess the gates of their enemies. It's a picture of power. Third one is an offspring. Through him will come blessing. Uh, blessing to all of the nations, the promise are comprised there. But these are heightened, these are intensified, and there's two different aspects of this, these promises which that, that reveals that they're intensified. First of all, God says, by myself I've sworn. And that's an interesting statement, right? When God says, by myself I have sworn, what we have here is an oath. God takes the form of an oath. A normal oath in that day would be, I swear by someone greater God has no one greater, as Hebrews 6 tells us, no one greater to swear by, so he swears by himself. So he takes an oath, even in addition to his promise and his covenant, he takes an oath in addition to those of what he will do. The second form that intensifies this is he says in verse 17, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. And really what he's saying is, I really will do this. You might even say, I really, really will do this. And we ask the question, why does God have to intensify his promises? Why does he have to reiterate them? Has he now all of a sudden become convinced that now I'm really going to do this like a parent might do? once Okay, now I really mean I'll do it and change in his mind. Has something changed in the mind of God that he would intensify his promises? And we know the answer that nothing has changed in God. His intentions are still the same. What he is doing then is not just reiterating his changes or emphasizing that. He's actually bringing greater encouragement for the beneficiaries of the promise that we see in God and what he is doing here, that he is giving a promise. He says, I really mean this. And it increases the confidence of those who are here. And God says, I surely will do this. I've told you once, told you twice, I really mean I'm going to do this. I will bless you and through you will come this blessing that will spread to the nations that will go through you in a way that you can't even imagine in numbers and in power and in blessing that you and no one else can even imagine. This is what I will do through you. And it's based upon the promises of God. It's based upon what I will do, not just in your obedience, but it's through that. There's two implications I want to draw. Think about that. The promises of God are the foundation in which anything is going to be done. The provision is the sacrifice Substitute. The promises are the foundation on which Abraham builds his life and all that he does. We build our lives as well. The whole gospel reminds us of this that the saving intentions of God are completely built upon his promises. And this is what it tells us about our, the gospel. It reminds us of these things that we know to be true, but is a good reminder to us that the gospel is not a message about trying harder, the gospel is not a message about more effort. The gospel is not a message of trying harder not to sin. The gospel is not a message about just try to be better and God will like you more. It's not a message about God helps those who help themselves. I had an argument with this 80-year-old lady once that she argued that that was in the Bible. And I said, I'm a preacher, you know. (laughs) I know this, you know. And, and, And she argued virtually to her death that it was in the Bible. I said, no, it's not in the Bible. That's not the gospel. It's not about just working hard and God will kind of fill in where you gap. We miss everything and we need to remember that it's built entirely upon him, entirely what he will do in us and through the promises. We need to be reminded that what separates us from God is just not our sin. It's our good works as well. We don't have anything good we can even bring to him. Our, our works are superficial. Even our attempts to do good are empty and futile as it stands in the presence of God. The gap is too great. It must be done by him through his means based upon his promises. The gospel is not a message of trying harder, but it's about depending on him and his promises day in and day out. And yet we fall into the trap, right? If I just do better, God will love me more. It's a part of human nature. When you're reminded, it's built upon him. The second implication of this truth of God's saving intentions are built completely on him as the great promises that we have give us. It's the only place to find hope and confidence. The only secure place we're ever going to find is in what he has said that he will do. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We read some of this in the call to worship. Hebrews seems to me to be a commentary on Genesis chapter 22 I find myself reading a ton in Hebrews trying to understand both sides of this. But in Hebrews chapter 6, it's interesting that the author of Hebrews builds this point, the hope that we have upon the promise, this very promise that God gives to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. And he links the promise of to Abraham with hope that's an anchor for the soul. There's a connection that he makes between this promise that's foundational and the hope that comes as an anchor for our soul. In verse 13 of chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. It's from Genesis 22. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. okay? God wanted to show to the heirs of the promise, who's that? Those who see the fulfillment of the promise in Christ that involves us, the readers of Hebrews, He wanted to show the more the unchangeable character of his purpose. He said, "I promise, I surely will do this." Verse 18. So by two unchangeable things, the promise and oath of God, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to, have, to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this. What's the this there? This is the reality of the promises of God that he's bound himself to us. He's revealed his, his commitment to us and his promises. And he's bound himself to us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. We root our lives. We build our lives. The security and confidence in our lives is built completely upon the foundational promises of God. And it's interesting the author of Hebrews says that's the promise. That's the very foundational piece is what God says in, in, Ab- in Abraham and what he does to him. God has bound himself to his people by way of his promises. And if you think about it, the the reality of God and who he is is relevant to everyone. But it's particularly relevant to those to whom he's given his promises, right? For example, Bill Gates is worth $60 billion, give or take a billion, okay? That's irrelevant to any of us just about unless Bill Gates says... I'm going to bring all my resources to bear. I'm going to bind myself to you in the form of a promise. And so that your, the benefit to you will come through me and I will bind myself to you. And that's what God has done. He says, all that I am and all that I have, I will connect to you. I'll bind to you in the form of a promise so that your well-being is connected to mine. And the promise is the connection between God and us. And it's that in which we build our lives. Two years ago, we were, uh, our family was traveling to Ethiopia We took a team of us, I'm trying to see if any of you in this room, I don't see any of you, some of you were, ten of us, we went, we got to the airport in Kansas City, and immediately were, we're sent on three different flights to make it to D.C. I didn't get there at the same time or in the same way, but Kelly and the kids, we were sitting in the airport there in D.C. after a very long day, uh, we had some group in Atlanta and another group in in Chicago waiting to get there. And it was just one of those days where you go, goodness, this is crazy. What's God doing here, right? You know, and we're sitting around the table and I'm kind of complaining, like I'm known to do at times. And uh, my kids will tell you that. And I'm complaining, going, man, this, da, 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 da. And my son pipes up and he looks across the table and he says, well, at least God is sovereign, dad. At least God is sovereign. And I remember, you know, as as a parent, you're going, would you shut up, you know? (laughs) Keep it to yourself, you know? And you kind of, it was taken aback, one, by where it came, it was great, out of the mouths of babes. But I remember, I was reminded, you are right. God is sovereign even in this silly situation where I'm frustrated. And you see what he did. You see what happened in that little situation was there was a connection between who God is and what he's promised and the situation in which we find found ourselves. The God who said, guess what? I'm good. Guess what? All that I am will be connected to you in the form of my promise. My sovereignty, my goodness is real right here and right now. And so the picture of the promise is a foundation for us. In the gospel, we can't earn it. It's a picture for us of the firm foundation that that is that anchor for our soul. Okay, see the two pictures, the substitution, provision. The promise is a foundation. third one, this is quick. The third one is an invitation that God gives to each of us who have experienced that, experienced the presence of God, who know what it means to live our lives in his promises of the gospel. Thirdly, there's an invitation if you'll turn back to Genesis 22, there's a promise that concludes this. It really caps it off. It shows the trajectory, trajectory, that's a hard word, trajectory of the promise of God in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed me. The invitation here is God says, my intentions are, is that I will use people in my redemptive purposes. My intentions is that I'm going to use you those who've experienced me who know my promises in my plan of redemption we see that Abraham was a part of that plan and we as well get to be a part of it through our obedience through our trust in God this story that he's writing we get to participate with him in that we see the scope and it's amazing to think here you got Abraham and God says all the nations will be blessed throughout all of history because of you And it's a reminder to us that this blessing comes to Abraham, but it's not to be kept by him. It's not a blessing for you. It's a blessing that would come through you. The same is true for us. The great provision that we have in Christ, the great promises that we build our lives around are not to be consumed simply by us. They are to be taken in and to be passed on. They are to be sent out so that others would experience the same blessing. As you move forward in history and you see Christ in the Gospels, the Gospels paint a picture of this lamb. They paint a picture of this Christ and the same one who came from Abraham. Matthew, in his Gospel, opens up his his book, his Gospel, in this way. He says, Jesus Christ, this is the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, the one through whom this blessing would come, the blessing to the nations, is this one the son of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, the one who would fulfill the promises of God, the one who would be the provision, the substitute who would die in our behalf, who would take our place, who would fulfill and complete the pattern of that substitute through his death and his resurrection would then provide for us, would fulfill the promises of God to us. And then how does it, Matthew end the book? He ends the book, after all these things have taken place, after that veil is torn in Matthew, the curtain is opened, access to the Holy of Holies, we come into the presence of God. Jesus at the very end of the book, Jesus says, now, after all this has been accomplished, now all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That he says, now is the command. Now as you've experienced and you've seen this blessing completed, now go to the nations. And in that there's a command, right? Go to the nations with this. Take the blessing of Christ and disciple the nations with the truth of who I am. But there's more than a command. There's a promise. I'm with you. I will, I will, I will enable this take place. This promise that was given to Abraham, this blessing, will go to the nations. There's a, there's a command. There's a promise. But there's an invitation as God says to us, you get to be a part of this. It's an invitation. In fact, as you've tasted me and seen the substitute, you understand what it means to have access to me. The promise of God on which you build your life now go. I invite you to be a part of my plan. This picture, this story is still being written. We have the privilege of being a part, serving with him in this way. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. For this reminder, these pictures of the gospel we become so self-centered in what we get out of it and not reminded that we get you. Forgiveness of sin is wonderful and we want to dwell in that and understand all that you've done and not take it lightly. But help us to see that because our sin is forgiven, because your wrath has been put onto Christ, that we have complete access to you. Help us to live in that rich reality. Let us draw near to you with the great hope that we have. Help us to live in your promises which are foundational to our lives. To remember that we can't do anything to add to it, but we would rest in all that you've done and find that security. And would you enable us to respond to your invitation to us to take what you've given, this blessing, and to pass it on, to live it out in the context of others so that the nations would be glad, so that the nations would see your greatness in Jesus name we pray amen I ask you to stand uh, for the benediction a response as we're going to to sing again this morning about the reminder of this great mission that God has sent us on and his kingdom that's being built so receive this as God's benediction as a reminder again the power that he gives to us now to him who is able to do immeasurably more Then all we ask or imagine according to his power does it work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus uh, throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
1: Glorious cause, O oh God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. The cross has saved us, so we pray. your kingdom come. Let your will be done so that everyone might know your name. Let your song Come. Give us your strength, oh God, and courage to speak, perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak, Lord. Use us as you want, whatever the test. Will preach your gospel to our dying breath. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. Let your soul